Hello and welcome to the Lazy Book Club podcast, the book club for those who don't want to read or leave the house. My name is Matt Gonzalez. <gasps> Boogaloo! It's David Cox. <laughs> and I'm Josh Matheson. So this week we are looking at chapter 12 of The Mysterious Fair at Styles. That's right. The chapter title is The Last Link. Now, both down Whitehall. Yes. So we ended the last chapter with Proro having a brain idea that he needs to look for a garage. A garage, which we assumed was a like car repair garage. Yeah, or a car selling garage or something. That's what we've assumed. But that idea was birthed out of Hastings reminding him that he was really annoyed about the fact that somebody broke open the the purple briefcase thing that um, Mrs. Inglethorpe used to keep all of her papers in. So we're not quite sure how those two things correlate. As with Poirot and the flower bed and the wheel, you know, he's probably going to surprise us with some crazy deduction that he's made. So I'm looking forward to it. Is it not obvious? I hate it when he does that. Oh, I know. <laughs> Just thank you, Poirot, for making me feel like an idiot. Why have you not realised it, you imbecile? Yeah. <laughs> oh, Sorry, Mr. Poirot. Yeah. Sorry, Mr. Poirot. <laughs> <laughs> we might also find out this, this chapter if John gets acquitted, as Poirot foretold that he would as well. So we get probably will find out the outcome of this court case i'm assuming that it won't be him because as we say poirot has to be the person to nail the guy doesn't he he can't be just an innocent bystander otherwise it would be pointless him being there so i have a feeling it's not going to be john but still intrigued to see who they end up pinging this on in the end should we jump in Let's dive in. Come on. I think we've got a lot of people who are in a lot of misery right now for not knowing who did this and they want to be put out of it. So here we go. They need to know who has done this. Who has done this? (laughs) (laughs) Chapter 12. The Last Link. Poirot's abrupt departure had intrigued us all greatly. Sunday morning wore away and still he did not reappear. But about three o'clock, a ferocious and prolonged hooting outside drove us to the window to see Poirot alighting from a car, accompanied by Jap and Summerhay. The little man was transformed. He radiated an absurd complacency. He bowed with exaggerated respect to Mary Cavendish. Madame, I have your permission to hold a little réunion in the salon. It is necessary for everyone to attend. Mary smiled sadly. You know, Monsieur Poirot, that you have carte blanche in every way. You are too amiable, madame. Still beaming, Poirot marshalled us all into the drawing room, bringing forward chairs as he did so. Miss Howard, here. Mademoiselle Cynthia, Monsieur Laurence, and good Dorcas. And Annie, bien. We must delay our proceedings a few minutes until Mr. Inglethorpe arrives. I have sent him a note. Miss Howard rose immediately from her seat. If that man comes into the house, I'd leave it. No, no. Poirot went up to her and pleaded in a low voice. Finally, Miss Howard consented to return to her chair. A few minutes later, Alfred Inglethorpe entered the room. The company once assembled, Poirot rose from his seat with the air of a popular lecturer 
and bowed politely to his audience. Oh, so is this, this the is final all... assemble? Ah! This, is, this is so Avengers. exciting. He's given everyone a seating plan. I just oh. love how dramatic he is as well. He does see this as like a play, doesn't this he? This is his He's ultimate like, entertainment. And now I begin. Yeah, exactly. He's so yeah, dramatic. Nightmare for the police. You're like, what are you doing? Just like, tell us or we'll arrest him. He's like, no, no. <laughs> <laughs> oh, I'm excited. Monsieur, madame, as you all know, I was called in by Monsieur John Cavendish to investigate this case. Hmm? I had once examined the bedroom of the deceased, which, by the advice of the doctors, had been kept locked and was consequently exactly as it had been when the tragedy occurred. Hmm. I found, first, a fragment of green material. Second, a stain on the carpet near the window, still damp. Thirdly, an empty box of bromide powders. Hmm? To take the fragment of green material first, I found it caught in the bolt of the communicating door between that room and the adjoining one occupied by Mademoiselle Cynthia. Hmm? I handed the fragment over to the police who did not consider it of much importance. Nor did they recognize it for what it was, a piece torn from a green land armlet. There was a little stir of excitement. Now, there was only one person at Stiles who worked on the land, Mrs. Cavendish. Therefore, it must have been Mrs. Cavendish who entered the deceased's room through the door communicating with Mademoiselle Cynthia's room. Hmm? But that door was bolted on the inside, I cried. When I examined the room, yes. But in the first place, we have only our word for it, since it was she who tried that particular door and reported it fastened. Hmm? In the ensuing confusion, she would have had ample opportunity to shoot the bolt across. Hmm? I took an early opportunity of verifying my conjectures. To begin with, the fragment corresponds exactly with a tear in Mrs. Cavendish's armlet. Hmm? Also, at the inquest, Mrs. Cavendish declared that she had heard from her own room the fall of the table by the bed. Huh. I took an early opportunity of testing that statement by stationing my friend, Monsieur Hastings, in the left wing of the building, just outside Mrs. Cavendish's door. I myself, in company with the police, went to the deceased's room and whilst I was there, apparently accidentally knocked over the table in question but found that, as I had suspected, Monsieur Hastings had heard no sound at all. Huh. This confirmed my belief that Mrs. Cavendish was not speaking the truth when she declared that she had been dressing in her room at the time of the tragedy. In fact, I was convinced that far from having been in her own room, Mrs. Cavendish was actually in the deceased's room when the alarm was given. Huh. I shot a quick glance at Mary. She was very pale, but smiling. I proceeded to reason on that assumption. Hmm? Mrs. Cavendish is in her mother-in-law's room. We will say that she is seeking for something and has not yet found it. Suddenly, huh? so Mrs. Inglethorpe awakens and is seized by an alarming paroxysm. She flings out her arm, overturning the bed table, and then pulls desperately at the bell. Mrs. Cavendish, startled, drops her candle, scattering the grease on the carpet. 
She picks it up and retreats quickly to Mademoiselle Cynthia's room, closing the door behind her. Huh? She hurries out into the passage, for the servants must not find her where she is. But it is too late. Huh? Already, footsteps are echoing along the gallery, which connects the two wings. What can she do? Huh? Quick as thought, she hurries back to the young girl's room and starts shaking her awake. The hastily aroused household come trooping down the passage. They are all busily battering at Mrs. Inglethorpe's door. It occurs to nobody that Mrs. Cavendish has not arrived with the rest. But, and this is significant, I can find no one who saw her come from the other wing. Hmm? He looked at Mary Cavendish. Am I right, madame? She bowed her head. Quite right, monsieur. You understand that if I had thought I would do my husband any good by revealing these facts, I would have done so. But it did not seem to me to bear upon the question of his guilt or innocence. In a sense, that is correct, madame. Hmm? But it cleared my mind of many misconceptions and left me free to see other facts in their true significance. The will, cried Lawrence. Then it was you, Mary, who destroyed the will? She shook her head, and Poirot shook his also. No, he said quietly. There is only one person who could possibly have destroyed that will. Mrs. Inglethorpe herself. Huh? Impossible, I exclaimed. She had only made it, she had only made it out that very afternoon. Nevertheless, mon ami, it was Mrs. Inglethorpe. Because... In no other way can you account for the fact that, on one of the hottest days of the year, Mrs. Inglethorpe ordered a fire to be lighted in her room. Hmm? I gave a gasp. What idiots we had been never to think of that fire as being incongruous. Poirot was continuing. The temperature on that day, messieurs, was 80 degrees in the shade. Yet Mrs. Inglethorpe ordered a fire. Why? Huh? Because she wished to destroy something, and could think of no other way. You will remember that, in consequence of the war economics practiced at Styles, no waste paper was thrown away. Hmm? There was, therefore, no means of destroying a thick document such as a will. The moment I heard of a fire being lighted in Mrs. Inglethorpe's room, I leapt to the conclusion that it was to destroy some important document, possibly a will. So, the discovery of the charred fragment in the grate was no surprise to me. Mm. I did not, of course, know at the time that the will in question had only been made this afternoon. And I will admit that when I learned that fact, I fell into a grievous error. I came to the conclusion that Mrs. Inglethorpe's determination to destroy her will arose as a direct consequence of the quarrel she had that afternoon, and that therefore the quarrel took place after and not before the making of the will. Hmm? Here, as we know, I was wrong, and I was forced to abandon that idea. Hmm? I faced the problem from a new standpoint. Now, at four o'clock, Dorcas overheard her mistress saying angrily, you need not think that any fear of publicity or scandal between husband and wife will deter me. 
I conjectured, and conjectured rightly, that these words were addressed not to her husband, but to Mr. John Cavendish. Huh? At five o'clock an hour later, she uses almost the same words, but the standpoint is different. She admits to Dorcas, I don't know what to do. Scandal between husband and wife is a dreadful thing. Huh? At four o'clock, she has been angry, but completely mistress of herself. At five o'clock, she is in violent distress and speaks of having had a great shock. Looking at the matter psychologically, I drew one deduction which I was convinced was correct. Hmm? The second scandal she spoke of was not the same as the first, and it concerned herself. Huh? Let us reconstruct. At four o'clock, Mrs. Inglethorpe quarrels with her son and threatens to denounce him to his wife, who, by the way, overheard the greater part of the conversation. At 4.30, Mrs. Inglethorpe, in consequence of a conversation on the validity of wills, makes a will in favor of her husband, which the two gardeners witness. At 5 o'clock, Dorcas finds her mistress in a state of considerable agitation. With a slip of paper, a letter, Dorcas thinks in her hand, and it is then that she orders the fire in her room to be lighted. Presumably, then, between 4.30 and 5 o'clock, something has occurred to occasion a complete revolution of feeling, since she is now as anxious to destroy the will as she was before to make it. What was that something? As far as we know, she was quite alone during that half hour. Hmm? Nobody entered or left that boudoir. What then occasioned this sudden change of sentiment? Huh? One can only guess, but I believe my guess to be correct. Mrs. Inglethorpe had no stamps in her desk. Hmm? We know this because later she asked Dorcas to bring her some. Now, in the opposite corner of the room stood her husband's desk, locked. She was anxious to find some stamps, and according to my theory, she tried her own keys in that desk. That one of them fitted, I know. She therefore opened the desk, and in searching for the stamps, she came across something else. That slip of paper, which Dorcas saw in her hand, and which assuredly was never meant for Mrs. Inglethorpe's eyes. Huh? On the other hand, Mrs. Cavendish believed that the slip of paper, to which her mother-in-law clung so tenaciously, was a written proof of her own husband's infidelity. She demanded it from Mrs. Inglethorpe, who assured her quite truly that it had nothing to do with the matter. Hmm? Mrs. Cavendish did not believe her. She thought that Mrs. Inglethorpe was shielding her stepson. Now, Mrs. Cavendish is a very resolute woman, and behind her mask of reserve, she was madly jealous of her husband. Hmm? She determined to get hold of that paper at all costs. And in this resolution, chance came to her aid. She happened to pick up the key of Mrs. Inglethorpe's dispatch case, which had been lost that morning. She knew that her mother-in-law invariably kept all important papers in this particular case. Hmm? Mrs. Cavendish, therefore, made her plans as only a woman driven desperate through jealousy could have done. Sometime in the evening, she unbolted the door leading into Mademoiselle Cynthia's room. 
Possibly she applied oil to the hinges, for I found that it opened quite noiselessly when I tried it. She put off her project until the early hours of the morning as being safer, since the servants were accustomed to hearing her move about her room at that time. She dressed completely in her land kit and made her way quietly through Mademoiselle Cynthia's room into that of Mrs. Inglethorpe. He paused a moment, and Cynthia interrupted. But I should have woken up if anybody had come through my room. Not if you were drugged, mademoiselle. Drugged? Mais oui. You remember, he addressed us collectively again, that through all the tumult and noise next door, mademoiselle Cynthia slept. That admitted of two possibilities. Hmm? Either her sleep was feigned, which I did not believe, or her unconsciousness was indeed by artificial means. With this latter idea in my mind, I examined all the coffee cups most carefully, remembering that it was Mrs. Cavendish who had brought Mademoiselle Cynthia her coffee the night before. Hmm? I took a sample from each cup and had them analyzed with no result. I had counted the cups carefully in the event of one having been removed. Hmm? Six persons had taken coffee and six cups were duly found. I had to confess myself mistaken. Then I discovered that I had been guilty of a very grave oversight. Hmm? Coffee had been brought in for seven persons, not six, for Dr. Bowerstein had been there that evening. This changed the face of the whole affair, and there was now one cup missing. Hmm? The servants noticed nothing since Annie, the housemaid, who took in the coffee, brought in seven cups, not knowing that Mr. Inglethorpe never drank it, whereas Dorcas, who cleared them away the following morning, found six as usual. Or, strictly speaking, she found five, the sixth being the one found broken in Mrs. Inglethorpe's room. I was confident that the missing cup was that of Mademoiselle Cynthia. I had an additional reason for that belief in the fact that all the cups found contained sugar, which Mademoiselle Cynthia never took in her coffee. Hmm? My attention was attracted by the story of Annie about some salt on the tray of cocoa, which she took every night to Mrs. Inglethorpe's room. I accordingly secured a sample of that cocoa and sent it to be analysed. But that had already been done by Dr. Bowerstein, said Lawrence quickly. Not exactly. The analyst was asked by him to report whether strychnine was or was not present. Hmm? He did not have it tested, as I did, for a narcotic. For a narcotic? Yes. Here is the analyst's report. Mrs. Cavendish administered a safe but effectual narcotic to both Mrs. Inglethorpe and Mademoiselle Cynthia. It is possible that she had a mauvais quart d'heure in consequence. Imagine her feelings when her mother-in-law is suddenly taken ill and dies, and immediately after, she hears the word poison. She has believed that the sleeping draft she administered was perfectly harmless. But there is no doubt that for one terrible moment, she must have feared that Mrs. Inglethorpe's death lay at her door. She is seized with panic 
and under its influence, she hurries downstairs and quickly drops the coffee cup and saucer used by Mademoiselle Cynthia into a, a large brass vase, where it is discovered later by Monsieur Lawrence. The remains of the cocoa she dare not touch. Too many eyes are upon her. Guess at her relief when strychnine is mentioned, and she discovers that, after all, the tragedy is not her doing. We are now able to account for the symptoms of strychnine poisoning being so long in making their appearance. Hmm? A narcotic taken with strychnine will delay the action of the poison for some hours. What's so interesting about this is, is that like it shows you that what we thought was maniacal genius is actually just a series of unfortunate events. <laughs> it really, very much is. Yeah. Like we um, were thinking like, oh my goodness, this person's like tailor made a poison that looks like strychnine, but is delayed unlike strychnine to cover it. And it's like, it just happens that two people were roofing people in the house that night. And the, like, the drugs I mean, the got in competition. Like happy for her to just like be dead in front of everyone. Just like, because that, oh, I suppose she would have been in the boudoir, wouldn't she? So she still would have like died. Um, what, what do you mean? The poisoner? Yeah, because it's suggesting that it happened. So where, if, if, it, if it was normal strychnine, she probably would have still died. She would have died, she would have died quickly. Yeah. Yeah, she'd have died in the boudoir, which is what they probably realized. Before she went to bed, yeah. Yeah. So it still would have Depending been. Depending on, on when or how this strychnine was administered, though, because he hasn't actually said which one had the strychnine in so mary was after the piece of paper that emily found in alfred's desk thinking it was relating to john's affair but actually it's not but that has caused emily to burn the will that she made that afternoon leaving everything to alfred so obviously there's something she's found out about alfred that she's not happy with that he's mm -hmm. she's now going right i'm cutting him out the wheel and i'm going back to john even though he's a cheater yeah so there's still a lot more to unravel here. That's Keep going, Poirot. Well, Keep going. The last link is still not revealed. <laughs> it's like watching an episode of Jeremy Carl, isn't it? It's like yeah. Like family <laughs> feuds. Yeah. You are not the father like, of the baby. No. <laughs> yeah. Shut up. <laughs> Poirot paused. Mary looked up at him, the colour slowly rising in her face. All you have said is quite true, Monsieur Poirot. It was the most awful hour of my life. I shall never forget it. But you are wonderful. I understand now. What I meant when I told you that you could safely confess to Papa Poirot, eh? But you would not trust me, hmm? I see everything now, said Lawrence. The drugged cocoa taken on top of the poisoned coffee amply accounts for the delay. Exactly. But was the coffee poisoned, or was it not? Hmm? We come to a little difficulty here, since Mrs. Inglethorpe never drank it. <gasps> dun, dun, dun. <laughs> can you both? Can you both shout uh, what? Because everyone does that. What? what? The cry of surprise was universal. No. You will remember my speaking of a stain on the carpet in Mrs. Inglethorpe's room. Hmm? There were some peculiar points about that stain. It was still damp. It exhaled a strong odour of coffee, 
and embedded in the nap of the carpet, I found some little splinters of china. What had happened was plain to me, for not two minutes before, I had placed my little case on the table near the window, and the table, tilting up, had deposited it upon the floor on precisely the identical spot. In exactly the same way, Mrs. Inglethorpe had laid down her cup of coffee on reaching her room the night before, and the treacherous table had played her the same trick. Hmm? I love that she's loaded and she has a table that's wonky, a little wonky that table. falls over. <laughs> Just replace the table. Like, got yeah. you've got loads of money and you've got a table where you put one cup of coffee on it and it falls and over. The whole thing tips over. Yeah. <laughs> so stupid. Mm. What happened next is mere guesswork on my part. But I should say that Mrs. Inglethorpe picked up the broken cup and placed it on the table by the bed. Hmm? Feeling in need of a stimulant of some kind, she heated up her cocoa and drank it off then and there. Now we are faced with a new problem. We know the cocoa contained no strychnine. The coffee was never drunk. Yet the strychnine must have been administered between 7 and 9 o'clock that evening. What third medium was there? A medium so suitable for disguising the taste of strychnine that it is extraordinary. No one has thought of it. Poirot looked around the room and then answered himself impressively. Our medicine! Huh? Do, do you mean that the murder... No. Do you mean that the murderer introduced the strychnine into her tonic? I cried. There was no need to introduce it. It was already there, in the mixture. The strychnine that killed Mrs. Inglethorpe was the identical strychnine prescribed by Dr. Wilkins. To make that clear to you, I will read you an extract from a book on dispensing, which I found in the dispensary of the Red Cross Hospital at Tadminster. The following prescription has become famous in textbooks. Strychnine sulfate, one gram. Potassium bromide, four ounces. Aquad, eight ounces. Fiat mistera. This solution deposits in a few hours the greater part of the strychnine salt as an insoluble bromide in transparent crystals. A lady in England lost her life by taking a similar mixture. The precipitated strychnine collected at the bottom, and in taking the last dose, she swallowed nearly all of it. Mm. So basically they're saying it like all sinks to the bottom and then it's not mixed properly and then you end up killing yourself of the last lot because you get all was the, the whole gram of strychnine right at the end. I remember yeah. them saying it was the end of her medication. It was the last. Yes, the, they did. They were like, oh, it can't have been in the thing because she was, she, she's at the end of the box, not at the beginning of the box or whatever. Now, there was, of course, no bromide in Dr. Wilkins' prescription. But you will remember that I mentioned an empty box of bromide powders. Hmm? One or two of those powders introduced into the full bottle of medicine would effectually precipitate the strychnine, as the book describes, and cause it to be taken in the last dose. Hmm? You will learn later that the person who usually poured out Mrs. Inglethorpe's medicine was always extremely careful not to shake the bottle, but to leave the sediment at the bottom of it undisturbed. Throughout the case, there have been evidences that the tragedy was intended to take place on Monday evening. 
On that day, Mrs. Inglethorpe's bell wire was neatly cut, and on Monday evening, Mademoiselle Cynthia was spending the night with friends, so that Mrs. Inglethorpe would have been quite alone in the right wing, completely shut off from help of any kind, and would have died in all probability before medical aid could have been summoned. But in her hurry to be in time for the village entertainment, Mrs. Inglethorpe forgot to take her medicine. And the next day, she lunched away from home. So that the last and fatal dose was actually taken 24 hours later than had been anticipated by the murderer. And it is owing to that delay that the final proof, the last link of the chain, is now in my hands. Amid breathless excitement, he held out three thin strips of paper. A letter in the murderer's own handwriting, mes amis. Huh? Had it been a little clearer in its terms, it is possible that Mrs. Inglethorpe, warned in time, would have escaped. As it was, she realized her danger, but not the manner of it. In the deathly silence, Poirot pieced together the slips of paper and, clearing his throat, read, Dearest Evelyn, you will be anxious at hearing nothing, but it is all right. Only it will be tonight instead of last night. You understand. There's a good time coming once the old woman is dead and out of the way. No one can possibly bring home the crime to me. That idea of yours about the bromides was a stroke of genius. But we must be very circumspect. A false step? Here, my friends, the letter breaks off. Doubtless the writer was interrupted. But there can be no question as to his identity. We all know this handwriting. And a howl that was almost a scream broke the silence. You devil! How did you get it? (laughs) A chair was overturned. Poirot skipped nimbly aside, a quick movement on his part, and his assailant fell with a crash. Monsieur, madame, said Poirot with a flourish, let me introduce you to the murderer, Mr. Alfred Inglethorpe. (laughs) End of chapter! (laughs) It's... Oh, the whole it was a double bluff. Good grief. Circle background. Oh, my goodness. <laughs> I love that, like, we were sitting there going, oh, my goodness, could she have made it any more obvious? Oh, everyone hates him. He aesthetically doesn't fit in at the court. He has yeah. a wooden hand. It's way too obvious. And then it turns out it's the obvious person. But it was, it's, uh, but it's I know it the way you think. in conjunction with Evelyn Howard, who's the other one. Yeah. Well, like, this is the thing. We the, hang ruled on. her out. They apparently hated each other, but they obviously didn't. They're in coat. Evelyn actually was very nervous to go in the room. She's like, oh, I won't be in the room with him. And she's probably like, I don't want to be in there because he obviously knows. Yeah. Ah! And also Evelyn was like, also she reacted, you know, when uh, I, th- you th- I think you know who you think it is. Oh, it couldn't possibly be. And she was like a bit dramatic. So actually oh. she's saying one thing, but obviously in her head going, uh-oh. So hang on, do you reckon that she's the one who's been planting all the evidence? Because she's the one who came in the re- the receipt. She's the one who would have taken the box from Lawrence when the beard arrived. It was her job to send it on to Lawrence. 
I think the whole thing about, oh, I need to, Hastings, I need to find somebody else who can kind of be my spy. He was like, I know that she's guilty here or she's got a part to play. So if I enlist her, if I give her a job to do, she'll probably present me with false evidence. I'll be able to tell from a mile away that it is false evidence and it will only further my knowledge that she is insane isn't it oh my god it's so clever because also like she's obviously read this note and gone okay i need to be out the house and then suddenly her and alfred have like this staged disagreement and then she leaves and he's like i can't take it anymore i'm gonna make sure i'm in a hospital working at the time of the murder so i have a solid alibi alfred's not in the house so he has an alibi like oh my goodness so there were two affairs after all as well, but it was actually Evelyn and Alfred are getting busy. Do we yeah. think, Which is, do we think that they're having an affair? Is that well? It says it says that there's a good time coming once the old woman is dead and out the way. I mean, money yeah, said, drive off into the sunset in their fiance. A good time coming, dearest Evelyn, as well. Like yeah, yeah, not all right mate. <laughs> he's he's basically admitted that he's the person who's killed her, but it was Evelyn's idea. So maybe did Evelyn was Evelyn the person who normally fixed her medicine for her? Maybe, and then I Evelyn wasn't there because if she works in the hospital, then obviously Evelyn must have some kind of medical training. She then nurse. wasn't there, so then Alfred was having to dote on her. So then he made her medicine maybe that night instead. He's mixed it up and gotten the strychnine off the bottom, and that's what's caused yeah. it to. If there wasn't like a motive and there wasn't this letter, you could easily have been like, "Oh, it was accidental." Sorry, I didn't. I was, know think, I was, I was thinking it was going that way. And I was like, hey, "If it's going to be accidental, it's going to be so." I'm going to be so annoying. I'm going to be so annoying, yeah, yeah. So annoying yeah. if it's accidental. But it was actually so like we completely discounted Evelyn for quite a good reason because because well, she, she had an left. alibi. We were presented well, she... with her having an ironclad alibi. Yeah, she literally yeah. left left Styles altogether. Yeah, before the murder happened. So then we're like, okay, but of course it was supposed to happen the day before. It highlights how much we weren't considering how premeditated this murder was, because yeah. we're sitting there going, we never suspected Evelyn. It's like, yeah, but Evelyn wasn't actually the murderer; she was the planner. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and it, kind and of, that, it and highlights yeah. how long these guys have been planning this for. Mm-hmm. that they're like right we want to get rid of her how do we get rid of her and have ironclad alibis and pin it on somebody else and then also almost have like a deniability of oh it was an accident she's just taken her medicine wrong my word yeah and it and it suited uh, it suited them for alfred to get arrested in the first case because as soon as he goes away they're like well that's fine he's been ruled out and they're gonna not yeah they're not gonna be him really yeah they're like well that's too, he's he's too obvious and he can't do it he can't have done it the thing is, it's almost quite clever as well, though, that they didn't actually arrest Alfred and that Poirot got him off because he was almost... Because Poirot was the reason why Alfred didn't get arrested in the first place. So it's almost like Poirot's going, no, 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 I see your game here. You're not getting arrested here and then let off and then not looked at. I'm going to get you off here and I'm going to keep an eye on you and I'm yeah. going to build my case. He wanted to do it on his own Exactly. And because they, you know yeah. what it's like, the police would be really nervous about bringing him in a second time if he's been proved innocent the first time. He needed to get the false sense of security, didn't he? So that yeah. he could carry on about his business. And make, mm-hmm. make and perhaps make more mistakes. Like It's interesting that a detective skill would be to... Because you, you've got active suspects in and around you, so you have yeah. to be allowed to allow them to make mistakes, and you have to create the environment in which they will make the mistakes. Yeah. If that makes sense. I don't know if this is still the rule now, but I remember that like in witness for the prosecution, sorry, spoiler alert, a guy gets accused of murdering somebody. The evidence 
because somebody witnesses for him gets him off because they give him an alibi that he didn't actually have but they knew that he actually did kill the person but because it went to court he got acquitted and thrown out they then couldn't re arrest him and recharge him with that's it the, that's so that's i think called, that's yeah it's double jeopardy so once you've been acquitted of a crime then they're like yeah, well that be a wasn't charge it's like illegal it's gonna be a different matter so this was obviously why Poirot wanted to make sure that alfred got off the first time because he knew that the police didn't have all of this evidence to put him away without a shadow of a doubt yeah. And so he was like, no, I'm going to make sure he gets out now so that we can definitely put him away when I actually work out exactly what happened. Oh, it's very clever. Hmm. I mean, so it turned out to be Mr. Pyra and Evelyn Melton Mowbray pork pie. Yeah. I mean, I, I, I'm kind of hoping that there's, there's one more chapter, isn't it? What's the next chapter called? Chapter 13. Poirot explains. Okay. Oh, I thought it was going to be a mega mix. No, I'm kind of glad because I kind of feel like we've gotten the charge, but we haven't really gotten like the actual explanation. No, like, no, is our Evelyn and Alfred actually like explicitly in a romantic relationship? Like, what what exactly is going on here? But they almost seem to have benefited from the confusion that's been caused by John and Mary. That obviously wasn't intentional. That just worked oh, in their yeah, favour. Yeah, yeah. Other stuff um, going which on. obviously made this case so much more chaotic and crazy than it should have been so it just shows you how like the circumstances have muddied the water for poirot you know they weren't actually as clever as you thought they were it was just the case that there was two opposing agendas going on and everyone's drugging everybody (laughs) how annoyed would you be if you were evelyn though because all of the stuff in terms of the crime all linked to him apart from this letter yeah. Do you know what I mean? Like, this yeah. letter is literally the only reason why she's an accessory to this murder. Did they and we'll the end garage? up going down for oh, it as well. We haven't no, he's not, garage, no, right? he's not mentioned that yet. So that hopefully will explain. Maybe, do you remember he was saying that um, Evelyn left in a car? Maybe yeah. he's gone she's the only to, one to find, the maybe he, he was like, the letter must be in the car that was taken from the, the dispatch case. In, I was going to say, where did he find this sh- shredded letter? Yeah. So I think he's gone to her car and she's obviously oh. stowed the letter in the car, not thinking that anyone would come looking for it. Oh. Or the well, garage well, maybe well. like serviced the car and they had it. And yeah. The last, the last link is the first big mistake. Especially yeah. Because yeah, there's, there's reasonable doubt up until that point. Really. But obviously if, if this is also an amazing play by Poirot, if he's basically invited you in and said, I need you as a confidant and I need you as a helper. You immediately assume he's not looking at me. I'm, yeah. I've gotten away with this. He thinks I'm, I'm innocent. Safe. I can yeah. On it. And so you're going to end up being a little bit more blasé about mm. the whole thing. So, I mean, it is just masterful. You're looking at this and the way that Poro has just formed this net and just kind of closed it around these people mm. is great. And it kind of just shows you how there's so much method to his madness that's been so far during this book. You've gone like, why is he doing that? Absolutely. What yeah. is going on? How do you write a crime thriller? I suppose you have to work out what who it is and you have to work backwards. You have to work backwards. Yeah. 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 And, then, and then keep adding twists along the way. Like, yeah. How do we complicate, how do we complicate this a bit more? It's also, though, knowing what evidence to withhold from the reader to make it more intriguing. Like, yeah. one of the main reasons why these things work is because you do not get all the evidence. Got to be the drift. We didn't find yeah. out about this letter until the very end. Because otherwise, it would have made it very obvious who the murderer is. We didn't know there was a cup in the plant until a bit later on. Yeah, what's yeah. a cup in the plant? And also, why would 
Lawrence be looking for a cup in a plant? Well, but I think can... it's just because he got intrigued by Poirot's little clue, basically saying like there he was a cup. looking for the cup. And he right. started obviously just looking around for it. I'm just glad that the whole sugar thing finally got explained. Yeah, yeah. it was annoying. As well. I'm like, oh, thank goodness. I, like... I think I did say at one point, I wonder if Cynthia's been drugged, but not by poison, but by sleeping. Yeah. I, th- I think I did say that at some point. <laughs> oh, it's all very cool. I'm, I actually really enjoyed that outcome. Well mm-hmm. done, Poirot, for the pageantry as well. I love it. Like the flourish. Let me introduce. Yeah. In the round. <laughs> yes. Yeah. A round of applause for our murderer. Wasn't that entertaining? And it's like, <laughs> Poirot, someone's just died. Like... This is bigger yeah. than just your entertainment National and your newspaper. sense of like enjoyment. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Hilarious. He takes a bow and then Alfred just like walks out. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> it's all about the drama and the pageantry for him. He doesn't actually care about the justice. Yeah. Yeah. It's just about being the centre of attention. <laughs> just, he's, he's, he's a typical... He, he just wants to be right, basically. Yeah, that's he's all it is. better against the police. He just wants to be right. Yeah. Something to while away the hours in Tadminster, I think. Oh, yeah. Well, if you had the murderer correct, no lying, we'd love to hear from you. You well can message us on thelazybookclub at gmail.com. Or if you were on a write something like, we would have got away from it if it wasn't, if it wasn't for you pesky kids or something along those lines. You can do so <laughs> on Hashtag <Twitter>. free John. <laughs> yeah. They, pulled, they, didn't, they didn't pull a mask off his face, which has really annoyed me. Uh, you could tell me that um, at lazybookclubpod. Twit, twit. Yeah. We always love to see a bit of fan art here and there. So if you've got some creative ideas, scribble them down on a napkin and post it on Instagram at Lazy Book Club Pod. We're also on Patreon. And for the very small fee of $3 a month, you, you do get an extra episode every month. And you also get to see all of the visual gags that David throws into this because you get a copy of the video of us recording these episodes. Now, I'm actually, even though we now know who did it, I'm still really looking forward to this chapter because I still don't understand the pageantry with the chemist. So it's like, okay, so if Alfred actually was the killer, who who went into the chemists with the beard on? Evelyn. Actually, just Alfred wearing a beard over his beard. <laughs> Evelyn. Or maybe, like, what? No, maybe what? it was him. And maybe it was him and he just um but he didn't need the strychnine. his own handwriting. No, he yeah. Didn't. But he didn't need the strychnine. The strychnine was already in her medicine in her room. Yeah, it was a, um, it so was it a, was uh, pure pageantry. Mm. Yeah, but that's what I mean. So it's like, did he just go to the chemist to buy strychnine to make a false trail leading to himself, hoping it would be double jeopardy and he'd get acquitted and then he wouldn't be able to get charged with it again, knowing that that wouldn't hold... Like, I don't get it. Or maybe there's somebody else who also wanted... Emily dead, who did it and tried to frame Alfred for it, but actually that just ended up going cold. Or I don't know. I don't. This is so. So there's still a lot of unanswered questions here. Still a lot of unanswered questions. So hopefully Poirot will make it clear to us next week, and we'll see you then. Bye. Bye. <laughs> Bye, everybody. <laughs> Bye, Doctor Wilkins. <laughs> <laughs> <laughs>